Well, good morning, everybody. That was loud. <clears throat> John the Baptist said of our Lord Jesus Christ, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. What did John mean by that? What would it look like when it happened? How would we know when it was done? Well, today we're going to try to work out together a doctrine of baptism in the Holy Spirit. Our work today is in the context of a series of sermons on the doctrines of applied redemption. In this series of sermons, we're not talking so much about how God saved us uh, through his son, Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, his saving lordship, but rather we're talking about the questions of how God applies that redeeming work into each of our lives. In other words, what happens when somebody becomes a Christian? And so far we've looked at things like common grace, election, calling, regeneration, conversion, justification, adoption, and sanctification. Uh, eight sermons so far. Five more to go, including this one. In thinking about baptism in the Holy Spirit, I'm not going to have time today to present anything like a full teaching on the Holy Spirit. Uh, That's pneumatology, a whole vast subject area in itself. But today is about something more specific. What does it mean that as part of becoming a Christian, a person is baptized in or with or by the Holy Spirit. When does that happen? What does that look like? And just so you know, the phrases baptized in the Holy Spirit and baptized with the Holy Spirit are interchangeable. They mean the same thing. Also, the phrase filled with the Holy Spirit essentially means the same thing too. We're talking about the same thing. So where might we begin with a subject like this? Well, I think a good place to begin would be to ask, when the people on that day standing on the banks of the River Jordan heard John the Baptist say those words, what would they as Jews have understood by them? Well, very quickly, from Genesis chapter 2, we understand that in a way that seems to be unique, Human beings are material creatures, physically made creatures, but made to receive the breath of or spirit of God. We are the vessels. The Holy Spirit is the substance that we as vessels were designed to carry. And the ancient world understood that some folk did indeed seem to have the Spirit of God in them. As Pharaoh, for example, observes in Genesis 41. And Moses, as we heard this morning, Moses, in answer to the anxiety created in one of his young helpers by a charismatic movement breaking out in the camp, says, I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his Spirit on all of them. And thereafter, through the rest of the Old Testament, all kinds of people are filled with the Holy Spirit in myriad occasions for various purposes. 
generally speaking, we're talking, not exclusively, but generally we're talking about priests, prophets, and rulers. It was being filled with the Holy Spirit that allowed Old Testament prophets to hear from God and to speak authoritatively on his behalf. They spoke as the Spirit moved them, giving them the words and oracles and dreams and visions and signs and wonders, pointing them to the Christ. The Spirit enabled them to know God intimately. And it was the Spirit that gave people both the desire and the ability to praise God and prophesy. The Spirit also enabled them to be human fulsomely. The Holy Spirit's presence in people's lives could be manifest by way of almost every conceivable form of wisdom, from artistic and technical skill, through performance and visual art, through to administrative and leadership ability, through to extraordinary feats of physical strength and endurance and speed, through to military might and know-how. It was the Spirit that allowed humanity to be human convincingly. That shouldn't surprise us. We, we are those little hopping bunny Duracell toys. And the Spirit is the little Energizer or EverReady or Duracell, whatever it is, battery within it. A human being without the Spirit is like a toy at Christmas, batteries not included. So then, from an Old Testament perspective, we were made to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Being filled with the Holy Spirit means knowing God intimately and personally through his word. Being filled with the Spirit also means being empowered and enabled and emboldened with respect to just about anything that God might be calling us to. And unsurprisingly, unsurprisingly, the Old Testament, looking forward to the age of the Messiah, the age where everything wrong is turned back to right, the Old Testament sees the age of the Messiah as the age of the Spirit. For this is how the prophet Joel saw it. The Lord says, And afterward I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So then, what people would have understood is they stood on the banks of the River Jordan and they heard John the Baptist say, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. What they would have understood is, this is the Messiah. With his age comes the age of the Messiah. And with his arrival comes the age of the Spirit. We'll all be filled with the Holy Spirit, knowing God personally, being empowered and emboldened and humanized. And unequivocally, 
unequivocally, the New Testament proclaims Jesus indeed as the Christ, as the Messiah, and the gift of the Spirit thus rightfully belonging to all who put their trust in him. And when the Holy Spirit filled the disciples on the day of Pentecost, recorded in the book of Acts chapter 2, Peter preached, this is that. That which the prophet Joel spoke of. And he finished that sermon with, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, That's how that famous day ended. How did it begin? Well, verse 1 of chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost came, They were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues, languages, as the Spirit enabled them. And as the scene develops, we find out with more precision what was happening. The disciples, um, a company uh, numbering about about 120, um, a a, a group of people that could fit comfortably in this room, they were all praising and worshipping God in well over a dozen different languages so that the visitors to Jerusalem, having arrived from every corner of the known world in order to celebrate the festival of Pentecost, they could hear them, quote, declaring the wonders of God in our own languages, unquote. Did this small congregation of about 120 already know these languages? Or did they acquire them miraculously, instantly? Or was there something in between? Well, actually, it's not specified. Uh, But I think the implication, given that these were all men and women who were Jews and they were from Judea or Galilee, I think the clear implication is that that acquisition of language was sudden and miraculous. So finally, now we get a sense of what it looked like that the disciples were baptized with or filled with the Holy Spirit. And on this occasion, there were at least four distinct physical manifestations of the Spirit's presence. An audible sound like like a rushing wind, a visible sign, something like tongues of fire separating and coming to rest on each of them. Another sign the miraculous acquisition of a language not previously studied. Another sign, spontaneous, extemporaneous praise and worship, something that the Old Testament would call prophecy. The clearest sign of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Was the day of Pentecost a unique, once-off historical event in salvation history, Or was it a pattern of things to come? Well, undoubtedly it was the former, that's obvious, but that doesn't answer the question fully because it could be both. Fortunately, as the book of Acts continues, we see people being baptized or filled with the Holy Spirit a number of times. 
in the following 26 chapters, vast numbers of people come to faith in Jesus Christ as the gospel spreads out from Jerusalem to the very ends of the the, the known world. But scattered through this journey, through the narrative, are four instances wherein we see new converts being baptized in the Holy Spirit. We hear about the first Samaritan believers. These first Samaritan believers were converted through the preaching of Philip. They believed, and they were baptized in water by Philip in large numbers, who was doing astonishing miracles in their midst. But they weren't baptized in the Holy Spirit until the apostles Peter and John came and laid hands on them. Acts 8, Luke clarifies for us, the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. In the next chapter, Saul was converted by Jesus himself on the road to Damascus. A few hours later, he was baptized in the Holy Spirit through the laying on of the hands of Ananias. Scales falling off his eyes as that happened. And then only after that was he baptized in water. Conversion, baptism in the Holy Spirit, then baptism in water. For Cornelius and his household, conversion and baptism in the Holy Spirit were concurrent. The Holy Spirit fell on them as Peter preached the gospel. This was unprecedented and absolutely astonishing to the Jewish men who were accompanying Peter on this mission for these people were uncircumcised Italians. Gentiles. But they'd obviously been filled with the Holy Spirit. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then they were baptized in water. Having been converted and baptized in the Holy Spirit, the evidence of them being true believers was undeniable. They were baptized in water. And again in Acts 19, with respect to the disciples in Ephesus, who hadn't even heard there was a Holy Spirit, when Paul placed his hands on them, 19 verse 6, when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues, and prophesied. And although there are various ways of understanding this passage, which we listened to this morning, um, it's possible, for example, that Luke means for us to understand that when Paul encountered them, they were disciples of John the Baptist. I think that's unlikely. But either way, however the passage is interpreted... Once again, we have a distinction between conversion on the one hand and baptism in the Holy Spirit on the other hand. Whether these people had been followers followers of Jesus for years or only for hours or minutes, their baptism in the Holy Spirit is clearly after conversion and after water baptism. So then, across the book of Acts, we see that to be filled with the Holy Spirit is indeed to be empowered, emboldened. The disciples, in fact, are routinely filled with the Holy Spirit again. It happens many times. But it means that they're emboldened, especially to speak the word of God effectively, 
but also to heal and be healed. To, and as we see in both Peter's ministry and Paul's ministry, to be filled with the Holy Spirit means to see clearly uh, what is going on spiritually and to be able to, to say it. And it's also to be filled with joy, as, as we've already sung this morning. We, we see that the fact of Holy Spirit baptism is confirmed by some physical manifestations. Tongues of what seemed like fire, speaking and praying in tongues, blind eyes healed, ecstatic, extemporaneous, praise and worship, the ability to prophesy as examples, probably representative, not comprehensive, and probably other things that happen too. Well, we've done enough work now to start thinking theologically about how we might characterize a doctrine of baptism in the Holy Spirit. And so let's make a start. Baptism in the Holy Spirit is being filled with the Holy Spirit. It is not the same thing as regeneration or being born again, nor is it the same thing as conversion, faith and repentance. Baptism in the Holy Spirit might come at some time later to regeneration and conversion, or it might come at the same time. It might come before, during, or after water baptism. Regeneration and conversion are manifest. Regeneration and conversion, they're manifest in intellectual, intellectual and emotional phenomena. A change of heart, a change of mind, strong convictions, new affections and orientations. But baptism in the Holy Spirit is manifest by way of physical signs, typically speaking in tongues, although perhaps many others, including prophecy. Because baptism in the Holy Spirit is physical rather than intellectual in its manifestations, it is unmistakable when observed by other believers. Baptism in the Holy Spirit is often elicited by prayer accompanied with the laying on of hands, but not always. Baptism in the Holy Spirit typically happens after baptism in water, but not always. And now, having done this work, we can see that water baptism can now be properly understood as an effectual sign and symbol of both forgiveness of sins, for in baptism with water we are washed clean, and also being filled with the Holy Spirit, new water to drink. This is perhaps a good place to summarize, but a bad place to finish. Because there remain important things to be said. Paul, for example, writes frequently about the Holy Spirit and he tells us a great deal. In all of his letters, he assumes, in all of his letters, he assumes that his recipients have been already baptized in the Holy Spirit. But in, in his letters, he never details what he himself actually thinks that means in terms of what happened. But in 1 Corinthians, he does write, for we were all baptized by or with one spirit so as to form one body. Whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, we were all given the one spirit to drink. Thinking theologically, when do we enter the body of Christ. 
It is upon regeneration and conversion, isn't it? It is when we're born again, faith and repentance. It is conversion. That's when we enter the body of Christ. But Paul here brings baptism in the Holy Spirit and conversion, entry into the body of Christ, together as the same thing. If my argument is that in Acts chapter 19, the disciples whom Paul encountered were indeed actual Christians, followers of Jesus, and that is indeed precisely what I think about them, then I must concede that they were already, by definition, members of the body of Christ, and therefore they were filled with the Spirit before Paul prayed for them. And I've tied myself up with string, theologically speaking, haven't I? It's also worth noting that earlier in the same chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul has written, Now, about gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus be cursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. The evidence that Paul gives for having received the Holy Spirit is not tongues or prophecy, but it is simply the Christian conviction, the belief that Jesus Christ is Lord, uttered out loud for all to hear. And from Romans 10, again, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. According to Joel, who are those who who are saved? All who call on the name of the Lord. Who are they? They are also the ones upon whom the Spirit has been poured. Thus it is the intellectual conviction that Jesus is Lord, the belief in our hearts that the gospel is true, uttered out loud as witness and testimony. This is what makes us members of the body of Christ, redeemed, justified, saved, and therefore necessarily baptized in the Holy Spirit. However, this would also mean that the disciples of Jesus were baptized in the Holy Spirit before they were baptized in the Holy Spirit. Because they were most certainly born again before the day of Pentecost. That's indisputable. And once again, I have tied myself up in knots. How might this have happened? Well, theologians... In order to come up with doctrines, what they do is pretty much the same thing as scientists do in coming up with theories. They pull things apart to see how they work, and then they label them. Thus we get lots of different doctrines in order to understand salvation, the doctrine of justification, sanctification, adoption, etc., etc., etc. But right here we can see that what theologians love to pull apart, Paul says, Let man not separate. He keeps conflating things that as theologians we'd want to split, divide, and label. He keeps bringing them together. That being the case, here is another attempt this morning 
at a doctrine of baptism in the Holy Spirit. Firstly, yep, definitely a thing. We can say that. Objectively, it is probably a part of conversion. Subjectively, it may or may not be experienced in many and different ways by different people at different times. But this is speculative. Scripture doesn't give us clear evidence, clear guidance, rather. It, it, what it does give us is a vast set of ultimately equivocal observations. Some closing thoughts to help us understand why I've led us this morning on a journey that might sound frustrating. Here's some closing thoughts. One, let's remember that we all read the Bible from the perspective of our own experience. It's impossible to do otherwise. Vast numbers of us, vast numbers of us have had experiences wherein the Holy Spirit was making his presence known to us by way of physical manifestations. This sort of thing is common and routine. For me, I was first filled with the Holy Spirit about 12 months after my conversion in 1992. Happened actually in this room, remarkably. On that occasion, as the Spirit came on me, I knew that my arms and hands were on fire. Uh, but there was no pain, there was uh, no heat, just the extraordinary feeling of something like flames. On another subsequent occasion, I was filled with the Spirit again at the 1995 John Wimber Conference, wherein I received the gift of tongues. And as that happened, I began to praise and worship Jesus in a way I had not previously known. When I read the book of Acts, I read it through the spectacles of my own experience, at least in the first instance. But vast numbers of us have not had any such experiences. They have never known any sort of physical manifestations of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And they've certainly not ever prayed in tongues. Indeed, the whole idea might just be alarming and spooky. There's no question at all that these Christians are different, spiritually speaking. The presence of the Holy Spirit is often powerfully manifest in their lives, obviously manifest, but in other ways. Spiritual maturity in Christ passionate lovers of Jesus and his word, depth of wisdom and understanding, grace and beauty of Christian character. Some of the most godly people I know have never had any such experience of being filled with the Spirit in the way in which I've categorized it. Well, we all read Scripture from the point of view of our own point of view. Reading doctrine, which is what we're doing in this series, in addition to Scripture, challenges this and helps us to think about whether our reading of Scripture might actually be a misreading of Scripture. Thinking about doctrine is important. It puts a mirror up to us and how we are reading the Bible. That said... 
Doctrine is not the main event. That leads me into point two. What Christians tend to do is to organize themselves into little groups of like-minded souls who agree with them on matters of doctrine. Amongst themselves, they affirm that they and they alone have the right answers. That's immensely reassuring. It's lovely when we all get together and affirm that we're right and others are wrong. Gee, we feel good about stuff and life in general. It's wonderful knowing you're right. With respect to the doctrinal matters we're looking at today, baptism with or in the Holy Spirit, the Pentecostals and Charismatics form up their battle lines from Scripture so as to defend their position, which also tends actually to be just a defense of their own experience. The evangelicals and other reformed conservatives likewise form up their battle lines from Scripture so as to defend their position, which actually turns out to be nothing more than a defense of their own experience. Such groups reassure their converts that actually they are the ones with the right answers. And this is the really evil part. Not infrequently forced intellectual conformity by way of the threat of social exclusion. That is profoundly evil behavior. And it is commonplace. But part of the power of such coercion lies in the unchallenged assumption that we are justified by right doctrine. All of us, at one time or another, make that mistake. The mistake of believing that we're right with God by way of believing the right things. But we're not justified by doctrine. We're justified by Jesus, not by doctrine. Justified, right with God, simply when we put our faith, our trust in Jesus, his son. And I, you know, I wrestle with that all of the time. But as a friend said to me during, during this week, I've often been wrong. But God has never corrected me angrily. Never excluded me for having wrong ideas. Um, now, doctrine has its uses. In fact, it's very useful. But it's okay to be wrong. As I imagine, I frequently am. And indeed, even in this series, it's okay to be wrong. And it's okay to love people who disagree with you. It's okay for us to love people who disagree with us and to even be their friends and hang out together. That's okay. Because we're not justified by doctrine, but by Jesus. So then, thirdly, just in case you haven't already noticed... I have failed today to come up with a coherent doctrine of baptism in the Holy Spirit that satisfies and explains all of the relevant observations and thoughts in the New Testament. We've failed to do that. That would be disastrous if we thought the point of doctrine was to come up with right answers. And it would be catastrophic if we thought that we were justified by doctrine. But hopefully, as we've considered something today of the work of the Holy Spirit, 
the Holy Spirit has been at work in us. The point of doctrine is indeed in a secondary way to help us sharpen our thinking and to think more accurately about God. But primarily, the point of doctrine is prayer, that we might love God more and also each other. So what has the Holy Spirit been saying to you this morning as we've meditated on the Word of God? How will you pray in response? I know what I've said, but I have no idea what you've heard. But if it's been from the Spirit, it's moved you closer to the Father through Jesus Christ, his Son. Let us pray. Come, Holy Spirit. Fall afresh on me. Fill us with power for knowing and serving Abba Father. Through Jesus Christ, his Son. And for obeying him in everything. Give us a passion for the Son of God. That we might be like him and love him. To God be the glory, now and forever. Amen.